Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Again, my name is Prentice. I am uh, the lead pastor here, and I'm so glad that you are all here this morning, uh, ready to join us in worship and to really hear about what God has to do uh, in our lives. And uh, we've been in Song of Solomon uh, throughout the last several weeks, and this morning we're uh, unpacking chapter 5. Uh, and if you came in with a bulletin, and if you are a note taker, uh, I'm going to apologize right now uh, because uh, I kind of left those notes. Those notes were ready to go on a Wednesday night, uh, and then with some things that are happening in our world, I had to kind of switch it up the last couple of nights. Uh, and so just know that it won't flow, so I'm sorry for those of you that are such good, adamant note takers. Uh, but this morning, uh, we're filled with a lot of tension, aren't we? I mean, even during the announcements when, when Sarah was talking, on one end, there's so many incredible things that are happening, uh, really even in the life of our church, that there's babies, that there's new events, that there's pursuit and justice and reconciliation. And, and at the same time, we watch the news, and there's heartache, and there's pain, and there's injustices. And so this morning, it's a little bit about that as it pertains to intimacy, because those are all connected together. And, and Song of Psalms chapter 5 deals with this idea of this tension that we have between beauty and messiness that we deal with in our lives almost every day. And so let me pray as we get started and we'll get to work uh, and just know that today's a special day and I just love what we're going to talk about. So let's pray. God, thank you so much that we get to hear from you, that God, even in the midst of, of injustices, of pain and violence and hurt, that we can still find hope and love and peace and comfort through you. So God, help us to learn more about how that relates to intimacy as we continue talking about your word in Song of Solomon chapter 5. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of us, we've heard uh, of this saying before that something uh, is a double-edged sword, right? We've all heard that term before, and oftentimes when we say something or something is a double-edged sword, it means there's two sides of something, right? That on one end, uh, it's something that brings a lot of joy that we just talked about, a lot of goodness, a lot of positivity, and on that same side of that sword, whatever that uh, whatever that thing that we're talking about, there's this negative part of it. There's this hurtful part of it. There's a painful part of it. And in our lives, we've experienced a lot of things that are a double-edged sword. Uh, and uh, the whole expression of double-edged sword comes from, uh, and I didn't know this, an ancient saying or an ancient uh, time when, when warriors discovered a double-edged sword over a single-edged sword, uh, and obviously, it, it brought about a lot of efficiency, uh, a lot of benefits. But the problem is, when the warriors, when they grabbed that double-edged sword and they would take a swing at their enemies, there was a chance, a risk, that they would hit the person or the shield or whatever it is, and it would bounce back, and it would actually hurt you as well. And so that's where this saying, double-edged sword, comes from, that there is this element of something that is for the positive, for the good, but at the same time, with that goodness comes risk of really hurting yourself. I love HarperCollins uh, Publishing Company defines this idea of double-edged sword this way. It says that a double-edged sword is an event or a phenomenon 
whose negative effect is inseparable from a positive one. Uh, It's a negative effect that is inseparable from a positive one. I mean, that doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? I'll give you an example of this that just happened last Friday. I don't know if you were aware of this. Last Friday was hashtag National Donut Day. Did you guys know that? I don't know who comes up with it. I don't know who makes it official. I just go along with it, okay? I just play my part as a good citizen in participating. And so that morning, I kid you not, I wish I was being facetious. I had two donuts in the morning. I had a donut for a midday snack. And I had a delicious maple bar, another one for lunch. Uh, And I don't regret it whatsoever. It was delicious. Now, for those of you that know me, know that I love my sweets and I love especially my donuts. I love donuts. I can't help it. Uh, And surprise, surprise, later that evening, I got a huge stomach ache. I didn't go out. I didn't do anything. I had to stay home because my stomach was hurting so bad. And I remember thinking, for me, a donut is a double-edged sword because how can something so delicious, so wonderful, so magnificent also be the source of so much pain, of so much hurt that I felt that evening? Now, I know that uh, that's a silly example, but for a lot of us, there are those double-edged swords that we deal with day in, day out of our lives. Life is filled with double-edged swords, but I would argue, and I would submit to you, that there's one aspect that cuts the deepest on both sides, of the good and the bad. It's something that becomes a very foundation of, of greatest joy, yet it can be the source of greatest pain. It's something that can provide incredible safety and yet evokes your biggest fears. It's something that makes you feel so strong and so powerful, and yet it can shrink you down and make you feel so weak and so fragile. And what I'm talking about is this idea of intimacy of intimacy. Intimacy is life's greatest and sharpest double-edged sword. And you can think about uh, the close relationships in your own lives, whether that's your spouse, your husband, your wife, your friend, your family, your significant other, whoever that might be. You know that the person closest to you can be the double-edged sword. That person closest to you can bring you that that, that incredible sense of joy and strength and security and safety. At the same time, that very person who once brought you all of that can also be the source of pain and tears and sorrow and hurt and loneliness and, and insecurities. And I would say the more intimate, and I don't just mean physically and sexually, the more intimately you're connected with somebody is the bigger chance that that person could do both, that that person could, A, bring you life, or B, bring you a proverbial death. And so intimacy is scary, yet beautiful. It's powerful, yet we don't know what to do with it sometimes. And I don't know if you're familiar with this man named Richard Rohr. He's a a priest. He's someone that I read often. And if you don't know who he is, you got to look him up because he's got good stuff. And here's what Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr, says about intimacy. He says, intimacy could be described as a capacity for closeness and tenderness towards things and people. It is often revealed in moments of risky self-disclosure. Intimacy lets 
ourselves out and lets others in. It makes love possible. And yet it also reveals your utter incapacity to love back as the person deserves. Intimacy, therefore, encompasses a loneliness, but a sweet loneliness. In intimate moments, you have been touched by something you cannot yet endure or carry, but you still love and touch and the, inv- and, and, and the invitation to carry itself. You're always larger than any intimate encounter. In fact, it might, be well, it, it might well be only way to enlarge spirituality. It is always grace. I love what he says. He says intimacy is a capacity that we have for closeness and tenderness. Oftentimes, what, you know, oftentimes that's scary to us. Uh, a great example of this is uh, our creation of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, God says that Adam and Eve were created, they were naked, and they felt no shame. I love that verse because this is above and beyond a physical attribute of them being naked. Uh, it's about how God created intimacy to be. You want to know what intimacy looks like, then look at Adam and Eve, the way I've created them to be. Naked, completely, not just physically, but inside and out, mentally, emotionally, yes, physically, spiritually. They were completely free to be themselves and offer it to the other without shame, without fear. They were naked and unashamed, and that's what intimacy looks like. And as we talk about intimacy and we see that naked and unashamed, we see that even in chapter 3 of Genesis that intimacy was disturbed and, yet, and then fear was introduced and shame was introduced and they ran from each other and they hid from each other. And that wasn't the last time we see intimacy being interrupted. We see that all throughout the scriptures and we see that especially now in Song of Solomon chapter 5. Here in chapter 5, for the first time, we see a little bit of trouble uh, in paradise, right? With this, with this man and this woman up to this point, this is their first time experiencing a little bit of turbulence in their relationship, in their marriage. Because uh, up to this point, uh, many would say that this man and this woman, they were the poster couple of what healthy relationship would look like, what covenant looks like what intimacy looks like, what romance looks like. And yet, even this married couple, this man and woman, even this married couple were not immune to the sense of rejection, insecurities, a feeling of loss. And here's something that we're going to learn from this couple, even in their time of turbulence, is that, A, intimacy begins with an invitation, Intimacy always begins with an invitation. And secondly, this invitation always includes risk. And thirdly, at the end of the day, it's all worth it. At the end of the day, it's all worth it. So let's begin with intimacy always begins with an invitation. It's in chapter 5, verse, uh, we're going to start in verse 2, and here's what it says, and I'll just read it to you. Uh, The woman says... I slept, but my heart was awake. She was half asleep. She was half awake. There's something uh, bothering her as she was in bed. Have you guys ever felt that way? Where you're in bed, you feel like you're asleep, but there's something stirring in your heart where you just can't completely fall asleep. This woman saying, I slept, but my heart was awake. 
Listen, my and, and then she says to herself, listen, my beloved is knocking, which is the man. And then here's what the man says. The man says, open to me, my sister, my love. Remember, my sister is just another way of saying uh, the one I love. It's, it's not to be intended like a biological sister. To me, to open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So this woman was half asleep, is stirred up, and this man is knocking on the door saying, open the door, open the door for me. My love, my perfect one, the one I adore. And there's a few things that we need to consider as we look at this text. Is that first, there is a double meaning uh, in the verse that we just read, which is quite typical for Hebrew poetry. Remember, this is poetry, uh, and in Hebrew poetry, there's a lot of double entendres and double meanings. Uh, and it means that, yes, this man is, if we envision it, this man is literally outside the door. Uh, and it sounds like there's rain or it's cold uh, and there's dew everywhere and he's wet and he's knocking on the door and saying, let me in, it's cold out here. Let me in, like it's freezing, it's raining, it's pouring. I need to go inside and to be in the comfort of your arm. So please let me in. There's this physical and this literal aspect of this man being outside wanting to come inside uh, and because it's all wet and it's raining and it's cold. And, and the second meaning, the second uh, the tundra, the, the second meaning of this, the wordplay is, is, is sexual in nature. Yes, on one side is let me in, it's cold out here. The second is let me in. I want you physically. I want to be with you intimately. Uh, and it says my head was wet with dew. And, and head, with, this Hebrew word is the word rosh. Uh, and it means a person's head, yes. But it also is used in other places uh, as a euphemism for male genital. And so he was at this point very sexually turned on as much as yearning for that intimacy with this person. So that's the first thing we need to observe. The second thing that we need to observe is this. It says that he's knocking. He says he's knocking. I'm knocking. Let me in, my love, my dove. And this Hebrew word for knocking is dopak, which literally means pounding. He's pounding on the door. He's not being courteous by any means. He's not being polite and knocking. Hello. You know, when you guys go to a door uh, and you want to be polite, you're saying, you, know, you kind of knock just really gently. Uh, he was not doing that. He was pounding on the wall, on the door saying, my love, let me in, in the sense of almost desperation, in the sense of almost begging her, let me in for two reasons. A, it's cold out here. I want to be in the comforts of your arm. And B, because I'm sexually aroused. So let me in. And, and what we see and what we read in this whole imagery is very, very profound because at the heart of what we see is an invitation. The, the intimacy cannot begin until the invitation is given. And, and even in this ancient Hebrew context, this is, this is very significant because this is a time when women had no choice, especially over their body, especially over sexuality, when it comes to their relationships, especially their husband. And we see a different motif earlier when the king could do whatever he wanted with this woman or anyone in his harem. Just by the snap of his finger, he can take a woman to his chambers is what the earlier chapter says. And yet, this relationship is very, very different. 
It's not based on control or force or dominance or coercion. It's based on choice and freedom and invitation. He's begging. He's knocking on the door. Easily, if this was a king, he can just kick the door down and says, hey, you're coming with me. Let's go. And yet this man is saying, please open the door for me. And clearly, it's up to her to decide if she wants to open the door for him or not. It's, it's in this element of freedom to choose. Again, that becomes a starting point for intimacy. And this is beautiful. This is closeness. This is what God had in mind when God created this idea of covenant. Not just with between people, but even between God and ourselves. That there was this idea of, of freedom to choose. And that's what initiates intimacy. As a matter of fact, that becomes a key component to intimacy and love and connection. You can't force that. But as a matter of fact, I would say control and force and dominance and intimacy cannot coexist. It's because we have the freedom to choose. It is what initiates the intimacy. I'll give you an example. It's, it's, it's been wedding season, and, and this time of year, I get a lot of calls of, hey, will you officiate our weddings? Will you do this or that? And, you know, sometimes I'll say yes or no, depending on if I know the couple or if I have time. Uh, last year, I remember meeting with a couple who wanted to get married. Actually, a good friend of mine. Uh, and before I officiate anybody's wedding, I have them sit down, and we just get to know each other. I want to hear their stories. I want to hear uh, how they met. I want to hear how, what the proposal looked like. But in the, in the background, what I'm seeing and what I love the most is how much they just dote over one another and how much they just look at each other and just they're so in love with one another. And I just love seeing that. And, and last year when I was meeting with this couple, I remember hearing the, uh, this couple both, the man and the woman, using this language of, oh, man, I couldn't live without. I can't imagine doing life without you. I can't imagine being with another person. I can't imagine uh, you going away. I need you. And I know that at the end of the day, that's all good sentiment, and there's this element of sweetness behind, I need you, I couldn't live without you. And I interject and I say, well, wait a minute, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but what if we change the language from need to I choose you? That it isn't force, isn't this idea of, man, I need you, I can't live without you. If we flip that around a little bit, I really believe it's even more powerful. It's more powerful to say, rather than I need you, to say, even though I don't need you, actually, even though there's so many men and so many women in the world, that out of everybody, by my free choice, I actually choose you. I think, and I believe the scripture is saying that is powerful. That is what's beautiful. That is what draws two people closer together in tenderness, as Father Richard Rohr would say. I don't need you. I freely choose you. And in marriage, the other person would say yes to that invitation, which creates intimacy. There's this uh, researcher, uh, a leading researcher in relationships and marriage and couple. His name is John Gottman, uh, who's, who's really local. He, he uh, teaches and does research 
uh, out of the University of Washington. And he has this book called The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work. And based on his research, uh, he can predict, he says, in the first three minutes whether a couple will last or not. And his research is credible, and people follow him, and people uh, even take his program to be a Gottman Institute counselor, even. Because he says, in three minutes, I can, I can predict uh, something like 93% whether this person will stay together or not. And in this book, he says, okay, but if you want a sustaining relationship, a sustaining marriage, here are seven principles that you should follow. And one of the seven principles is this idea of turning towards one another. To make a marriage work, to make a relationship work, you must, two people must turn towards one another. And here today, what I'm calling an invitation, Dr. Gottman would call it a bid, a bid. He says oftentimes we need to bid, give a bid for connection, a bid for intimacy. And a bid is very intentional in trying to create that intimacy because intimacy isn't automatic. It, just because you, there's, a, there's a relationship status on you, just because you're married, just because you say you love one another, this idea of intimacy is not by default. It doesn't just happen. You need to make an invitation or what Gottman would say, a bid, a reaching out for that intimacy, that connection, that tenderness with the other person? Are you putting out a bid for your spouse for intimacy? Or maybe it's not even your spouse. Maybe it's a significant other. Maybe it's even a friendship. Maybe it's in the context of family. But intimacy must start with an invitation, with a bid. And the question is, are you, am I, are we being the initiator of intimacy. Too many times we wait. And I think if you've been in a relationship long enough, you know, it gets really comfortable. We get lazy. We get busy. We, we take things for granted. We take people for granted. We take relationships for granted. Oftentimes we, we justify it by saying we're so introverted. We don't like to initiate. Uh, and I would say fact of the matter is, and sometimes we're driven by fear to make that first step, that first bid of reaching out, of intimacy. And I want us to ask all of us, even myself, what's the bid you need to make today? What's a tangible bid that you can make to your spouse? Maybe it's for physical intimacy. Maybe it's, for, maybe it's a bid for honest and authentic, genuine conversation uh, with a significant other or, or a friend. Is it making a phone call to catch up? For some of you, is it, is it asking that person out on a date? What is that bid that we need to do in our lives? Because I would say it requires courage and vulnerability to make that first bid. It's difficult, especially if we've experienced pain before. And in that pain in our lives, in whatever context of relationship, also forces us uh, to be our inauthentic selves, right? We play this game, which Dr. Gottman, again, would call game theory. He would say sometimes when we're driven by fear of making that bid, there's this game theory that we only give as much as that other person gives to us, game theory. So if that person gives, let's say, I don't know how you would measure this, 25% of affection, then your response would be only 25% of affection. If that person gives 75%, then you would only give 75% of affection. And what God is saying, 
throughout this entire scripture, throughout Genesis 2.25, being naked and unashamed, is that the way that we give intimacy, the God's, God's economic does not add up. It's not 50-50. It's not 25-25. It's 100 and 100. And that 100 takes courage and bravery. That small bid is scary, but it can change the whole trajectory of your relationship, your relationships, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your friends, whether it's your family. Now, as we earlier, as we talk about this, this double-edged sword, uh, we get to this idea that the freedom of invitation becomes the proverbial sword. And if that freedom of invitation is the sword, the double-edged sword, on one side is the beauty. Again, you know that the person that you love the most, the dearest, can provide you with so much security and safety and joy. On the other side is this idea, is the antithesis of that. It's rejection and it's fear. So we love the idea of freedom, right? Because we want to be free to choose who we love and how we love. And when someone chooses you out of freedom, out of their own free will, that's beautiful, that's intimate, that's special, that's tender. But the risk of every aspect of freedom is for that person to either say yes to that bid. Oftentimes we give a bid, and that person has a choice to say, yes, I accept that bid, to draw closer to you as you draw closer to me. And that's special. The problem is, in that same bid, in that same freedom, the person has an, also has an opportunity to say, actually, no. I do not accept that bid. I don't want to say yes to your invitation for, for intimacy. And we see people and we've experienced people say no to our bid to intimacy. Whether you're, whether, again, whether it's your spouse, whether you're married, whether you're not, whether you're single, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family, people can still say no to that invitation to intimacy. As we read a little bit further, it says uh, in verse 3 through 6, here's, here's the woman's response to the lover's bid. The woman, after the man says, let me in, let me in, you know, he's pounding on the door. Uh, I love you and I want to be with you. Here's what the woman says to the man. Hey, I, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on again? I had bathed my feet. How can I soil them? My beloved thrust, and then all of a sudden, my beloved thrust his hand into the opening of the door. And in my, unmo- and in my inmost being, yearn- I yearn for him. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dipped, uh, dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, upon the handles of the bolts. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and was gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but did not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. We see this kind of back and forth. It gets a little strange. After this man makes this bid, the, the woman, she essentially rejects him and says, look, I'm already in bed, okay? I've already showered. I'm already clean. I'm not going to walk on the dirty floor again. I'm in my pajamas. Hey, thanks for the invitation. I'm good, though. Uh, and, and maybe she was playing an element of, 
I'm hard to get. I'm not sure what's really happening. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you can see this guy out of, out of I'm kind of picturing it, out of desperation, after he's pounding on the door, he, there's probably a keyhole or something. He's looking in, and he, you know, kind of creepy. He puts his hand through the keyhole and says, come on, I need you, I need you. And all of a sudden, she changes her mind. And, so, and, and really, there's a lot of sexual euphemisms here, too, that now she wants him, not just, uh, not just mentally and emotionally and relationally, but even physically, intimately. Uh, and so we see a lot of that. And so she finally gets up and opens a door only to find that he is now gone. They both kind of reject one another. And, and I would argue it's driven by fear, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, it's, and remember, Hebrew poetry is filled with double meanings. And so, yes, there was a sense of rejection on both sides for physical intimacy. Remember, they're both yearning for each other physically and emotionally. Yet there was a rejection on both sides. And yet I love what, uh, what the writer says. Uh, and again, this is the double meaning, not just sexually, but even relationally when it comes to intimacy. He says, I opened to my beloved. So she opened the door. I opened to my beloved, but my, but my beloved had turned and was gone. I opened. I was naked and unashamed. I made this bid, I opened, I said yes. And yet it says, my beloved had turned away and is now gone. Have you ever experienced this? You make a move, uh, the bid for intimacy, only to be answered with rejection. Maybe you've asked somebody out and, and they weren't interested and they said no. Maybe it's a breakup or, or even a divorce, or maybe it's even in your marriage. Because uh, again, even marriages aren't immune to loneliness and rejection and insecurity. And maybe it was a bid for a physical closeness and that you were turned down. Maybe it's a bid for a connection, a conversation, and yet you were denied. Maybe it was uh, for some kind of tenderness towards one another, towards holding hands or whatever it is, and yet you were met with a no thank you. And the worst part is it can, it can, this rejection of this bid of intimacy can perpetuate a cycle of being closed off, of being afraid, uh, of not ever wanting taking chances, which then leads to further distance of intimacy with the other person. See here in verse 3 through 6, it seems like both the man and the woman were working and driven from a place of fear that was first initiated by rejection. They, never, they didn't feel safe with one another anymore after that bid was denied. She says, no, thank you. Somehow she changes her mind. And then we see that he says, no, thank you. He runs away. We don't know what's happening, but we do know that the distance of intimacy is getting further and further and further away. They're driven by fear, not to be present, not to rebid for intimacy. When I was in fourth grade, and maybe I'm dating myself, uh, but every Valentine's Day, we would have a Valentine's Day party in my elementary class. Uh, and I don't know if they still do this, but we would make out of construction paper, these mailboxes. Uh, and in this class, what we would do is we would get Valentine's Day cards, uh, and we would put in uh, our Valentine's Day cards into every classmate's mailbox. 
Did any of you guys ever do this? Okay, a lot of us, yeah, several of us have done that. And maybe your kids will do that. I don't know if they still do that. But I remember year after year, I would always buy the Superman cards. And they would have, you know, cheesy things like, I super love you, or have a super Valentine's Day. Uh, and I would say, you know, just write my name, say happy Valentine's Day. But there was this one, one girl uh, that I actually really liked. And I wanted this one. I, I remember her. Her name was Christy, okay? I won't say the last name because this is recorded. Uh, but I remember... I remember it was Christy, and I had a crush on her uh, for at least a couple years. And I remember I wanted to give her a different Valentine's Day card. And so I made one out of construction paper. It was actually, <laughs> wow, it was, <laughs> it was shaped like a heart. So I cut a heart out, and I wrote, Happy Valentine's Day. I like you. I think you're pretty, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I know that we joke about this. And so I gave the rest of my classmates a super, have a super Valentine's Day, blah, blah, blah. But I gave her this heart-shaped card, and I kid you not, I know we joke about this, and I actually literally wrote, I like you, do you like me? Uh, we joke about it now, but it's a real thing. We actually used to do that, and there would be a checkbox saying yes or no. I should have said maybe. I didn't because, you know, it at least gives me a little bit of a chance. But I didn't. I gave her a yes or a no option. And I remember at the end of the school day, I'll never forget this, because I get the card back, and I open it, and there was a big check that said, no. And I can laugh about it now, and I'm okay with you laughing about it now. But I do remember, as a fourth grader, how hurt I was. And I was being so, so dramatic. I remember going into my room, I saw my bed, and I literally just fell down. <laughs> And I was so sad. And I vowed as a fourth grader to never, ever fall in love again. I vowed as a fourth grader to never take a chance again because it was hurtful, because it was scary. And a lot of us, we operate from that similar type of fear. So intimacy can't continue. Remember, intimacy, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether it's family, whether it's a friend, it can't sustain itself by itself. You must bid for it. You must be intentional about it. You must work for it. And sometimes we're too afraid to do that. You know, after what happened in London, the tragedy and the pain that people suffered, and even in Manchester, and even, there's so much that we can't even keep track. I have this app, I have a news app on my phone, and it goes off every single day. And almost every single day, the news app, it's an alarm saying, another attack, this many deaths, this many people injured. And it's just so painful, I need to re I'm going to remove it. But it tells you how much pain and hurt and violence there is out in the world. And at the same time, especially after London, uh, I would check my Twitter feed, uh, and I see so many feeds saying uh, yes, and there's you know, prominent people saying yes, this is why in the U.S. that the ban is important. We need to beef up our borders. We need to beef up our security. We need to make sure that the, the ban against refugees and, all, and other foreigners from Middle Eastern countries cannot come into our country. And this isn't a jab at any politics. Your politics is your business. It's none of mine. But I would say that if we withhold love and we withhold support and we withhold compassion due to us being driven by fear, I believe that's sad. 
I believe that's a sad place to be, that we refuse to love because we're driven by fear. And oftentimes that's us, not just in our relationships, but even in the world and being in relationships with others. Because in 1 John chapter 4, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I, I was telling this story just yesterday. We had an incredible conversation talking about kids about race, an important conversation to have. And, and I remember coming up and I told my story, my personal story about my experience with racism. Uh, and, and I told this story that just happened just two months ago. I was driving on the freeway, uh, and I told a story. I didn't tell the story of how angry I was afterwards, but I was driving on the freeway, and I was going on to a, did the freeway from an on-ramp, and I sped up, and apparently I cut somebody off, and I, the person started starting honking and honking, and I was like speeding up, like, I don't know what's happening. I just got onto the freeway. I'm confused, and I'm driving, and that same car drives up, speeds up, pulls up next to me, and I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, this guy's going to start yelling at me. He's going to tell me I'm number one. I don't know what he's going to do. And as we're driving on the freeway, we're, mind you, we're going like 65 miles an hour. He lets go of both his wheel. He grabs his eyes, looks at me, and opens, like slants his eyes while he's looking at me, obviously as a racial gesture. And I thought to myself, hey, man, he must be really angry because he risked his life letting go of the wheel just to really anger me or to really hurt my feelings. And as I was driving, I remember not being, uh, yes, I was angry, but I also teared up a little bit because, A, racism still exists. And, and I could have easily said from that point on, geez, I hate white people. I will resent them, and I'll never trust them for the rest of my life. I could have done that. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of movements where people do do that. And yet God calls me to love. God calls me to always reach out and invite people towards intimacy. Whether I know them, whether I hate them, whether they tick me off, whether they're hurtful to me, it is my responsibility as a person, as a believer, to always bid for intimacy and not be driven by fear, not be driven by hate, and not be driven by anger. In our relationships, in love, and in our connection. That's the, that's the hard part, is that the intimacy is beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's great, and it drives us to fear. It drives us to push away. It drives us to be hurt. And I can't believe I'm quoting this song, but there's a song where the chorus says that love is like a paradise, a paradise, a paradise. It's a war zone. It's a war zone a war zone. Intimacy is like paradise. Intimacy is like a war zone. And yet, it's worth it. So the question is, why not give up on it? Because that connection of tenderness, of love and security, when you do get it, it's worth it. And it's worth fighting for. It's worth bidding for. It's worth giving out that invitation. Uh, I'll just read real quick, chapter 5, as we continue, verse 10 uh, through 16. Uh, after all of this, after all this back and forth and rejection uh, and insecurities, this woman says, my beloved, they said, describe that man to me. 
And she could have said, oh, that guy's a loser. Or I hate that guy. Or man, good riddance. Oh, I dodged a bullet, right, out of fear and out of self-protection. Instead, she says, well, I'll describe him to you. She says, my beloved is like a radiant and ruddy distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside springs of water, bathed in milk. Filthy said, his, his cheeks are like beds of spices, yielding fragrance. His lips are like lilies distilled in liquid mercury. You got to trust me, this is good stuff, okay? I know this is super strange and foreign, but what she's saying is, what, says, let me describe him to you. Here's what I remember. Here's what I'm reflecting on. It's incredible. His lips are like myrrh. He's like a lily. He's strong, and he's safe, and he's beautiful. And I'm attracted to him. And what we have is solid. And what we have is wonderful. It's worth it. It's worth the fight. And so she's searching in this verse because she's gone. She gets up. And that's another thing that's significant. This woman gets up to pursue him and says, where are you? Where are you? She says, what does he look like? He's wonderful. He's beautiful. Because to her it was worth it. And it's worth it for us to find Christ in our situations to pursue that intimacy. Not to run away from conflict, because oftentimes conflict becomes just a laboratory for intimacy. And I think the greatest, and I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we continue in worship, as we take communion, I want to just talk about uh, the embodiment of what Christ did when it comes to intimacy. When Jesus, I just want to tell you, Jesus, before his death and resurrection, he knew that his best, one of his best friends would sell him out for cash, what ultimately drove him to be crucified. He knew that uh, one of his best friends would deny him three times. He knew that his disciples would abandon him, and yet he didn't go 50-50, he didn't go 25-25, he went to the cross and gave his life 100%. And even to this day, Christ bids for intimacy with us. And yes, we can say no. And oftentimes, we do say no to the bid of intimacy. And then Christ is saying, today say yes, not just to me, but to intimacy to the people I have you with. And so we're going to partake in communion. It's a symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he says, take this bread and, and take it and remember it as this is a symbol of my body that was broken for you. And then he says, drink of this as this cup is a symbol of my blood that was shed for you. This is my way of saying I bid for intimacy with you. No matter what you say, I want to be in close relationship with you. Receive it. And as you receive this, live this out with others in your life. And so I'm going to invite the communion service forward. Uh, and when you're ready, as we worship, come forward. You're going to take the bread. We're going to do it in tension. We're going to dip it in the juice. And we're going to partake saying yes to the bit of intimacy that Christ has for us. 
We're going to go inside and out. So if you're on this side, we'll go inside and out, inside and out. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that you bid intimacy for us. May we say yes. May we see you as a model of how to live out this intimacy with others. That you went to the cross knowing that you would face rejection uh, then at that time, even now today. And yet still you would do it over and over and over again because of your love for us. May we model that. In your name we pray.